Welcome to the Digital Euro Podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Digital Euro Podcast, the podcast by the Digital Euro Association. My name is Conrad Kraft, Executive Director at the Digital Euro Association, and today I'm happy to be joined by the members of the second iteration of the Public Digital Euro Working Group. The Working Group's paper entitled Privacy and CBDCs covers topics such as degrees of CBDC privacy, CBDC privacy stakeholders and the data required or emitted by them, the role of technology in CBDC privacy, as well as touching on the legal framework related to CBDC privacy. To help us unpack this publication, I'm happy to be joined by some of the members of the working group, Anthony Ralphs, Kombe Koponda, Daniel Zago. To get things kicked off, now let's delve a little more into the topic of privacy. Anthony, you focused on a section that looked at the degrees of privacy and the importance of privacy from a CBDC-specific perspective. Could you tell us a bit more about it? Sure, absolutely. And this was a really interesting uh, topic to look at because part of our thinking here was actually to sort of take a step back and say from a CBDC perspective, there are retail CBDCs, there are wholesale CBDCs, there's kind of mixtures, um, and there are different use cases or different requirements depending on how you design that system. But what we also wanted to do and part of the section that we wrote um, really looks at how do you how does the CBDC compare to existing methods of payment? So we looked at really the sort of the, the acceptance, the information that is passed as part of a transaction. Um, so everything from um, what, what do you do today? What information is provided as part of, let's say, a cash transaction versus um, I walk into my bank and want to do a wire transfer or I use a mobile money app or a credit card? Because I think it's important we were as we were discussing this really to look at contextually um what do people share today in terms of making a transaction and i think there are opportunities when we look at cbdcs and we'll i think that the rest of the group will kind of touch on this as well really to potentially improve uh privacy as well when we think about this and, and who needs to have access to what data um and we kind of put it into that that lens of looking through it and saying for a cash transaction, it is as close to anonymous as you can get, depending on your viewpoint um, and depending on the country uh, and also your, the frequency. Um, it is possible to identify people by their personage walking around. So in the UK, as an example, there's a lot of CCTV. So you could you could very tenuously argue that uh, cash itself isn't truly anonymous because you start to build a, pa a pattern. You leave a fingerprint Around. So what we wanted to do was compare those fingerprints really to sort of systems level or a, a, an instrument level and how that would compare to a CDC. And then the second half of the section really looks at um, what are the different approaches that you could apply to CDCs in general uh, as a way of obfuscating or hiding or preventing uh, partners or parties that don't need to see uh, part of the transactional data um, what are the different approaches to do that from a hypothetical and that say the paper then touches on a little bit around some of the, the nuances uh, and the detail of how you achieve this. But there are different models that we're seeing adopted around the world, everything from 
fully transparent on a public ledger all the way through to a very closed environment where maybe the regulator or the central bank or the authority uh, can see the transactional data and maybe you as a, or me as an individual wallet holder um, only share my data uh, with the government, essentially. I don't share the data with the merchant. Now, this kind of also poses some questions because the world we live in today uh, very much revolves around data being provided as part of a transaction. And in a CBDC world, it's actually possible to, to turn that off, to change that and potentially own data. So we wanted to try and level set really around how data is shared, how it's used today and potential opportunities. But it's also important to think about the use case because there are there's sort of different ways of thinking about this. So in a wholesale context, it actually might be advantageous from a financial stability and transparency perspective to make the data more publicly available. But that also has a competitive connotation there of does that disclose information that I wouldn't ordinarily disclose with a competitor? So there are nuances to this, but there's also huge opportunity but there's also a huge risk. And what we're trying to do is identify different patterns for risk. And that was kind of what we we're trying to summarize in this sort of degrees of privacy within uh, existing frameworks and potentials with CBDC. Thank you for the great summary, Anthony. Um, now, of course, CBDCs will be issued and distributed with the use of various actors. And uh, as such, it is perhaps worth touching on who these actors or stakeholders are and perhaps briefly understanding the data they may require or may need to provide in participating in a CBDC network. Kombe, could you perhaps take us through what was uh, it that you touched on in your section? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Conrad. And I think, uh, uh, like like Antonis put it, uh, we, we had um, we had good deliberations. You know, just just going through the paper. And I think for us, uh, we looked at research from from different jurisdictions. Uh, but interesting research mostly came from the European Central Bank, where security was ranked on average higher than other features uh, uh, on a CBDC. But but the degree of privacy and the reasons for privacy and how you prioritize that privacy, you know, uh, brings in uh, different uh, issues depending on which uh, jurisdiction you're looking at. Uh, I myself am from the sub-Saharan Africa, so I was looking at it mainly from developing economies and how, you know, developing economies would look at privacy in the central bank digital currency and and how that could 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 affect the rollout of a, of a central bank digital currency but we we zeroed in and focused mainly on on the privacy stakeholders and i think regardless of which jurisdiction you're looking at developed or developing the major stakeholders uh, pretty much are, are similar and, and i think as central banks look to uh, piloting and and probably rolling out these central bank digital currencies these privacy stakeholders have to be taken on board early enough to, to make sure that the buy-in to the privacy concerns uh, before even looking at, at, at piloting. But we also looked at um, you know just the trade-offs between what privacy and issues of anti-money laundering, combating of financial terrorism, and how these can affect any central bank digital currency. Because you know you're looking at a cash-like uh, CBDC and in jurisdiction where uh, cash is still king. Uh, uh, and you're going digital, you know, you still have to trade off of what, how anonymous you are using cash as as compared to when you go to, to a digital platform. And most of it is is because, you know, uh, uh, if you're using cash to transact, the merchant or whoever is receiving that bill doesn't really care about who's 
who's handling that cash. And obviously, you know, as long as the cash is verified, as long as the cash is authentic, that transaction goes through. If you go to a digital platform and, and most particularly central bank digital currencies, you know, there'll be issues of uh, uh, um, now issues of identity and, and, and then different jurisdictions are looking at how do they now look at that identity and allow privacy for, for the user. Because ultimately, you know, if it's a, a low value transaction, a transaction you're using to to do your day-to-day -day shopping, to buy your groceries, uh, you know, even authorities doesn't want to look into who's using uh, and who's spending on those. Uh, and, and the approach is, you know, you tier that. And unless the transaction are high value, that's when probably you can, you know, uh, look through those transactions if there's an anomaly. But ultimately, uh, in a nutshell, uh, the major players that have to be taken on board uh, pretty early as as, as as a CBDC is being conceptualized, you know, will range from uh, obviously the monetary authorities, uh, central banks will start off the process, but they have to engage with uh, either 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 central government or uh, in, in developing economies, mostly it's the Ministry of Finance. Uh, those also probably have to loop in uh, other stakeholders that might uh, in, include uh, the issuing of authority, the monetary authority, which is the central bank, reserve bank in some cases, obviously financial conduct authorities. You know, if you have financial intelligence uh, units or centers, those have to be taken on board. But most importantly, you know, if it's a two-tier CBDC, you look at partnering with commercial banks, uh, you look at uh, getting on board payment systems providers, uh, competition and consumer protection, because ultimately, you know, these transactions have to be protected and consumers have to be taken into consideration. Uh, you have to look at other authorities that are allowing that value to move. Uh, like I said, in developing economies in the sub-Saharan sub Africa, you, you find that uh, uh, most of these transactions um, are, are still reside, uh, are still transversing on mobile or financial uh, transaction, which is mobile money. So ultimately, uh, uh, a central bank digital currency will probably have to find a way of interoperating with other already existing payment systems platform like mobile. And those already have their different kinds of KYC. So there has to be a balance between, you know, how... Uh, no customer formalities are being done on other payment systems platform comparing to CBDC and then taking into consideration all those stakeholders, uh, issues of uh, national identity uh, is key because if you're onboarding, you know, you have to consider what you're going to use. But I think, like I mentioned, the issue of tiering uh, the, the onboarding process is, is key because if you're using uh, a central bank digital currency for just low value transactions, Sometimes you want to make sure financial inclusion is, is prioritized. And, and that way you don't want to ask for a full KYC where you get uh, the national ID, you get the identity, you get a uh, uh, physical address, but ultimately you can uh, scale it down to where even just a mobile money can be, a mobile number, I'm sorry, can be used to, to onboard a client. That way for low value transactions, you know, a lot of people can get on board and you can ultimately, you know, achieve uh, issues of financial inclusion, have as, as many people as possible using that platform. And ultimately, you know, you want to use it as a national uh, payment systems platform. And if if if, uh, uh, if privacy is taken into consideration and you take into consideration the low tiers where day-to-day -day transactions are, are onboarded as easy as possible to get as many as people as possible to buy into the central bank digital currency and use it as a, as a national payment systems platform. Thank you very much, Kombe. Indeed, very important topic. 
And uh, this was very well articulated uh, in your section or the section that you contributed towards rather. Um, so let's turn to technology. Uh, Daniel, could you perhaps share what was outlined regarding the relevant technological considerations uh, for privacy within the context of CBDC usage and implementation? Sure. Uh, so practically one of the key issues of, of privacy, of course, if it can be realized, I mean, if, if there's technology uh, to support the ideas at all. And then uh, for this chapter, uh, we just had like three sub-chapters, uh, basically starting with a little bit like introduction, having some analysis between between privacy and security. I mean, privacy and security are not necessarily contradictory uh, with each other. I mean, especially in blockchain, I mean, you can have like in blockchain, you have practically an authenticated data structure, which is replicated um, without much privacy, but can be put like privacy on top. So these are just not necessarily contradictory uh, design goals. However, it's a little bit more interesting if you can have like privacy and compliance. So it's a more interesting question if you can put privacy and then like regulatory compli compliance in terms of AML and KYC. And that's, I would say that's more challenging uh, from a technical perspective. Of course, um, what you can do, you can you can publish your data to, to certain uh, centralized parties, um, making sure that your AML and KYC are guaranteed. But that's practically a poor design, I would say. So here there's really, I mean, basically a very deep uh, technical and theoretical research, how like uh, KYC and email guarantees can be actually done uh, with like strong privacy. And one clever idea is like like having like sensor and identity systems, uh, which practically provide very good privacy guarantees, uh, despite giving like the possibilities of having like, like uh, guaranteeing the regulatory compliance. So this is our third subchapter. Sub sub and then we continued basically a little bit like on privacy approaches, uh, going a little bit into the uh, technical and theoretical details. I mean, it's just, just a half page or one page. So uh, it's a very, very brief overview on, on different technologies. Uh, I would say we can have like two big areas of technology, uh, technologies in terms of privacy. Uh, on the one hand, uh, we can say, so the easiest way of, of guaranteeing privacy is kind of a physical privacy. So basically the data is not there. So basically people can't see it. Uh, very simple, uh, despite working. And then there are many designs which uses uh, this kind of idea, uh, both with, with uh, distributed ledger technologies and with, uh, with like, uh, like message-based systems as well. But of course the main, main uh, or the more interesting topic is is basically cryptographic and cryptographic guarantees in terms of cryptographic uh the one of the classical approach is basically the classical encryption uh as like in tls protocol uh which is simple or i would say traditional uh despite it's used like in the in the uh, chinese cbdc and then we can have like clever key uh, distribution algorithms as well, uh, like advanced pseudonymization, like with the, the ring signature, ring signature uh, signatures uh, from Monero uh, or from the stealth address from Monero, 
uh, they are clever, uh, clever uh, but despite, I mean, giving a very good privacy solution. And of course, uh, from a theoretical perspective, the most uh, interesting and I would say hyped solutions are zero knowledge proofs, uh, which actually can provide both, both very good privacy and scaling solution as well. And of course, some other theoretical possibilities are like uh, homomorphic or functional encryption, uh, which are pretty much still in the research and research development phase. Uh, actually, we we uh, just closed our chapter with some some future hints, and then basically that's quantum compu computing. Uh, co quantum computing is coming. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, the timeline is not for, not so sure, but despite, I would say, every CBDC system should prepare that eventually uh, uh, quantum-resistant cryptography should be used on a long run. So basically, we just finished our chapter with, with some analysis how much this uh, post-quantum or quantum world uh, could affect uh, CBDC privacy. And then some hints, I mean, basically the solution is there's a very active research and research and development part uh, in the world of, of doing like post-quantum uh, cryptographic algorithm. Uh, that means practically these are encryption algorithms running on normal computers, but despite uh, providing uh, actually a defense against quantum computers as well. So that's where we basically closed our chapter and then with some hints to the latest initiative from NIST NIST, uh, in terms of uh, post-quantum cryptography and standardization. Thank you very much, Daniel. Of course, uh, technology being an integral part of solving the, the, the privacy policy compliance uh, tension. And with that said, I'd like to congratulate everyone involved in producing this publication. It has certainly been a significant contribution to the CBDC literature. And with that, we are at the end of our podcast episode. Thank you to our working group members who joined today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We hope that you've enjoyed it. Reach out to the Digital Euro Association via Twitter, LinkedIn, and our website to stay up to date with the latest news and discussions around CBDCs and stablecoins worldwide. Be sure to tune in next time and join us in the quest to shape the future of digital money. <laughs>